legal precedence for you to believe for your life. So just take that, all right? You guys good? Here's a little pop quiz. Doesn't everybody love pop quizzes? They're just so good, all right? So I don't want you to answer these theologically. I want you to answer these emotionally. If you are a Christian, do you ever feel as if any of these statements are ever true? Sometimes God is angry with me. Sometimes he's happy with me. Okay, I'm not asking you to answer out loud, <laughs> okay? I want you to answer. Not me, maybe these poor losers. No, 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 we're not. It's just between you and your emotions, okay? And I'm guessing that one of these will be true at some point in your life. Okay, all right, but I appreciate that. All right. <laughs> if you're a Christian, do you ever feel as if any of these statements are true? Sometimes he blesses me, sometimes he withholds his blessings from me. When something good happens, I'm waiting for something to bad happen to balance it out. Sometimes God is with me, sometimes it feels like he's far from me. Today God wants to prosper me, but tomorrow he may give me poverty to humble me. I'm glad you guys are laughing at some of these. <laughs> Go ahead. But it's a reality for many people. The more I draw close to God, the more he wants to bless me. The farther I drift from him, the less he wants to bless me. If I can get rid of this sinful habit, then God will be happy with me and want to bless me. If I sin, God is not pleased with me. If I do certain things like pray more, he will be more pleased with me. When I do something wrong, I feel like I can't pray or worship for a few days until I've done something good to come boldly into his presence again. How are we doing, guys? Here's the problem behind, here's the root problem of this thing. The problem is guilt. And you'll serve God out of fear rather than serving God out of love. Here's the message of religion. You're not doing enough. You need to do more. Here's the message of the new covenant. Jesus did enough. Trust that. Anytime you're feeling like, you know what, it's not good enough. I just, I'm bad. I'm this and that. Old covenant. You need to look at Jesus. Is what he did enough? Trust in that. Listen, you have a choice. You can live out of one or two relationships with God, Old Covenant or New Covenant, based on your performance or based on Jesus' performance, as a slave under the law or a free son or daughter. You can serve God out of love or you can serve God out of fear of punishment. So we are going to need to understand the sin offering in Leviticus. Yes, we are still in Leviticus. I just was trying to trick you a little bit, but we're running right back to Leviticus there. We're in a series called Guts, Grace, and the Gospel, and we've been looking at how there's five offerings in the book of Leviticus. And so we already looked at the first three offerings. Those were voluntary offerings. They were called sweet savor offerings. Because as they offered these offerings up to the Lord, it says they were a pleasing aroma to him. Why were they a pleasing aroma? Because they reminded him of his son Jesus. And it pleased him. So we looked at the um, burnt offering. We looked at the grain offering. And we looked at the peace offering. <laughs> Some people need to hear it a second time. All right? <laughs> It's okay. But now we're coming to a different set of offerings. I'm like, I think I recognize that voice. That's not God's voice. That's me. Yeah. Help us, Jesus. Now we're coming to a second set of offerings. These were not voluntary. These were mandatory offerings. Okay? And these were not a sweet, savory offering because these offerings reminded God of your sin. 
Okay, and see, so this will be the sin offering, and the next time we'll look at the guilt offering. Okay, so let's look at the sin offering. Leviticus chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Anytime you see this phrase in the book of Leviticus, there's a subject change. He started in chapter 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, and then he didn't change the subject because he was talking about the voluntary offerings. Now we're getting to the mandatory offerings. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, verse 2, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them. So he's getting ready to give us some instructions about unintentional sins. Here's the question. What about intentional sins? This is what's crazy about the Old Testament. There were sins that were not forgivable under the Old Covenant. Those were ones that were done with a, as a deliberate act here. Okay, so, so what he's talking about here is these unintentional sins. He's like, you know, if there's an Israel, you've got a heart for God that's, uh, you know, your, your, your life is for him. You make a mistake, you slip up, you do something. Um, that, that is forgivable. But the sin of deliberate rebellion was not forgiven under the Old Testament. I want you to get this picture. If you had a son or daughter under the Old Covenant and they were rebellious, you didn't like ground them or give them time out. They got times up. They got taken outside the camp and stoned to death by the elders. That would wipe out most of America in one day. Mary and I were watching some stupid TV show. We don't usually watch Christian movies because they're usually they're just cheesy, just to be honest with you. We call it Jesus instead of Jesus. <laughs> but some of the theology says sometimes it's just so bad. It's always an angry God. And we're, we're watching one. I'm not going to tell you what one it was, but it was just... Stupid, we shouldn't have been watching it. Anyway, and so, um, and this girl, there was, had a rebellious teenage girl, and she says, at the end, you know, she says, oh, Dad, I'm sorry for being rebellious and making your life so bad. He says, that's okay, honey, you're a teenager. That's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> Not in ancient Israel. Most of us adults, we would not be sitting here today based on the way we treated our parents. <clears throat> It was unheard of in Israel to have a rebellious son. You, you would have never heard of it because that son would have been dead. <laughs> there was no forgiveness for rebellion. Under the old covenant, rebellion was as the sin of witchcraft. Why? You're, you're following a foreign spirit that's leading you to do something against God's will. It's the same thing. And how was witchcraft dealt with? That was not forgiven under the old covenant. It was an abomination, and those devilish abominations had to be wiped out. That's how they kept the purity in the camp. Is they could not be redeemed, so they had to cut it off like a cancer. It was actually a benevolent thing, big picture, small picture. It was pretty harsh. There was no forgiveness for murder. There was no forgiveness for adultery. How are we doing? I got some good news for you. We are under a better covenant with better promises. Here's Paul. He's in the middle of preaching the gospel in Acts 13, verses 38 and 39. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By him, everyone who believes is freed, are you ready for this? From everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. All the stuff that the law didn't cover, Jesus came to forgive you even of that, which was good news for Paul since he was a murderer. This explains to you Psalm 51, the prayer. David, he, uh, David was king of Israel, and he had a problem. And so he sees this woman named Bathsheba, and she's married, and he's like, I want her. And so he uh, basically commits a hit on the husband, murder. Her husband Uriah kills him, so that now he's free to be with this woman and uh, has adultery with her. So uh, two unforgivable sins under the old covenant. Are you guys seeing this? 
So David knows there is not a sin offering that will cover this sin. So let's uh, pick up his prayer in, uh, in uh, um, Psalm 51, 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. What's he saying? There's no offering that's going to cover this one. So how does he appeal to God? Let's, look, let's go back to Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. God, give me mercy from the fountain of forgiveness. He's going straight to the heart of God rather than the law of God. I know your abundant love is enough to wash away my guilt. He's using covenant language here, by the way. It's, 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 if you understood these words here, this is the kind of covenant that God came to make with man. Because your compassion is so great, take away this shameful guilt of sin. Forgive the full extent of my rebellious ways and erase this deep stain on my conscience. What happened? David reached forward into the heart of, of God and touched the cross as an old covenant believer. Even those sins that couldn't be covered by the law of Moses, he reached forward into a different time. Now, there's different sacrifices for different groups of people um, in, in the sin offering. And so if it was a group or it was a leader over a group, it had to be a male offering. It, it had to be a male animal. If it was an individual, it had to be a female animal. So let's pick this up in verse 3, Leviticus 4.3. Are we doing okay? Okay, so first one, uh, some sins weren't covered. New covenant covers them. I'm not really, I don't really write down points, but I guess sometimes the sermons seem pointless. But anyway, the, um, so the, the second point is, is there was a different price for sin depending on who you were. This is big. Leviticus 4.3. If it is the anointed priest who sins, just so you know, under Israel, however the high priest went, so went the entire congregation. You could have rebellious people but have a righteous priest who would make that, the right kind of offering on the Day of Atonement. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. And um, the entire Israel would be considered righteous because of the one high priest act. If you had great people and you had a sinful high priest and he did not make that proper atonement, all of Israel would be cursed. So it's a big deal the, how the anointed priest acts here. So you always knew how you stood as a nation based on the righteousness of your high priest. I want you to think about your right standing. You can tell your right standing before God by the righteousness of your high priest. If Jesus is righteous, so is sanctified everybody underneath him. If it is anointed high priest, if it's anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people. Why? Because as the priest went, so went the people. Then, the, then shall offer the sin that oh man, this is wordy. Then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering, most expensive, highest cost. So the greatest influence of sin, the greatest cost. Leviticus 4, 13 and 14. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, it's ranking them kind of here, uh, sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of the things by the Lord's commands that ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt, I want you to get this too. There's always an attitude of repentance. It's never this legal transaction. It's always this attitude of repentance under which uh, sins are forgiven. Um, they realize their own guilt, verse 14. When the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it to the tent of meeting. So this one doesn't have to be unblemished. It's, uh, it's a little bit less expensive. In the case of a ruler or a king, here's the requirement. Leviticus 4, 22 and 23. When a leader sins, a ruler or a king, doing unintentionally any one of the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done, and he realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring his offering a goat, a male without blemish. 
Out of all the goats, that would be the most costly, one without blemish, but not as expensive as the bull. You guys seeing kind of the ranking here? Leviticus, uh, now, uh, if, but here we find a female is to be offered to when the common people sinned or just like an individual sinned. Okay, Leviticus 4, I'm going to summarize here. I know I'm going quickly, but you can see there's a pattern here, all right? Leviticus 4, 27 and 28 and verse 32. If any of the common people, that's you and me, sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commands ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. Verse 32, if he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish. Here's the principle. The greater your responsibility and the greater your influence, the greater your condemnation. The sacrifice had to be more costly. You can see this in the natural. If, um, if a person in the church sins, it doesn't typically make the news. But if a leader sins, it's front page headlines, depending on the size of the influence. It's interesting, in the book of James, he says, not many of you should desire to be teachers. This is under the new covenant, because you will undergo a stricter judgment. So the principle still stands a little bit today. That's enough of that. All right. Here's part of the ritual is there was always the person who had committed the sin or who was representing the people who had committed sin, there was a laying on of hands on the head of the animal. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 4, verse 4. I'm saving the best parts here. This is about to get very good here. <clears throat> so it didn't matter what animal was used. This was always the pattern. Verse 4. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. Can you see how this isn't just some cold tradition? It's always in the presence of God. Remember, here they are in the outer court, and right behind, you know, two curtains away is the flaming presence of God, literally there in the Holy of Holies. So laying your hands on the animal, this was identification. This is a person I am identifying with this animal. When you, here's what happens. When I lay my hand on this innocent animal, my sins are transferred to this animal, and I now become innocent. The lamb must die now because all of your sins have been transferred to its body. Because it dies bearing my sin, I get to go free. Are you seeing the image here? This is, this is crazy here. In the same way, Jesus had to die on the cross with your sins so that you might go free. He was not murdered. He laid down his life. He became sin. All the sins were transferred onto his body so that you could go free. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's what this means. It means the moment that you trusted Jesus as your Savior, all of your sins, past, present, and future, were transferred onto the body of Jesus. And he was killed in your place so that you could go free. Hold on, Jim. How can God forgive future sins? You better hope he can. He only died once. We've done whole messages on this where we looked at how he was uh, eternal redemption. How he was uh, slain before the foundations of the world. He died once for all. It's good news. Jesus died in your place as your sin offering so that you might go free. 
Here's the big difference between the sin offering in the Old Testament and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in, your, in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats, they could only provide a temporary solution for sin. The Bible called it an atonement, a covering. It couldn't, it couldn't really remove it. It just it was a temporary thing. It kept reminding God that his, sin, that his son is coming, that his son is coming. And, and, and that's what stayed off the judgment. But under the New Covenant, listen to Hebrews 10, 14. By one offering, he has perfected for a momentary time. The, no, that's not what it says here. By one offering, he has perfected forever <clears throat> those who are being sanctified. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, so the sacrifices, they had to be offered repeatedly. But Jesus' sacrifice, Hebrews 10.10 says, was once for all. It is a complete and finished work, and he never needs to be sacrificed again. Jesus is the perfect sin offering. If you remember, and uh, we, we kind of did a demonstration. I think we had the, our young bull Daniel came up here before. In the sin offering, I lay my hands on the animal, and my sins are transferred to that animal. It dies. I go free. In the burnt offering, the roles are reversed. I lay my hand on the animal in all the innocence, favor, and perfections, unblemishedness, if that's a word, of the animal now come upon me. Remember, this is Jesus hanging on the cross. All the perfections, favor, loveliness, delight that the Father has over Jesus now comes upon me, and all my sin, all the stuff that I don't even want to talk about gets transferred onto the body of Jesus. He dies. Jesus gets what we deserved and we get what Jesus deserved. Guys, this is the best news you'll ever hear. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts the burnt offering and the sin offering all in one verse. For our sake he made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. What's that? That's the sin offering. The innocent animal becomes the sin. But here's the next part. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Burnt offering. All of his righteousness gets transferred to our account. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, your sin is transferred to him, and his righteousness is transferred to you. Okay. This is what I really wanted to talk about this next part. The rest was just warm up. This has the potential to change your life. Well, so does everything else does too. That was all, I love it. This next part... I only saw it last night, and I told Mary, I said, I'm not going to take attention on anything else except this part. Well, I couldn't help myself. I had to do that other stuff. This got me. I could hardly sleep last night. Leviticus chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Are you ready for this? Here's the principle. The blood must be visible. You ready for this? Verse 5, And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. So now, they're, they're now they've gone from the outer court into the holy place, right next to the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the presence of God dwelled inside the Ark of the Covenant, in between the wings of the cherubim, the whole deal. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. Why seven times? Seven, uh, seven was the number of the covenant. It was the number of perfect completion. And so here, it's, it's recognizing that um, my sin has affected my access to God's presence, but now it's being restored here fully, seven times. And that verse 7, And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of the fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. 
and all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of the burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. <clears throat> this is so good. I want you to get this picture here. This animal is being slaughtered, and the blood is being placed in such as being placed on the horns of the altars, being placed in axis. So it's very clear that God sees that this deal is done, that you are forgiven, that your debt is paid, but more importantly, you see it. I want you to think about all the other gods in the ancient Near East. They were basically pictured as kind of superhumans who were moody. And so they had to offer these food offerings to them because uh, the picture was they were almost like Marvel superheroes. And um, if we did not feed them, then they would get angry. And you never knew how much was enough. This is what's going on in the book of Leviticus and the other nations. So get this picture is um, they have a bad year and they're like, you know what? We must not have given enough crops in the offering. So we better give some more crops. And if they had a good offering, they're like, I mean, had a good year with the crops. Like, I remember, they saw that the crops needed sun and rain, so they had a sun god, and they had a rain god, and so they would have tried to appease these angry gods and get on their good side. This is what's going on. And they never knew what was enough. So the whole, the whole ancient Near East and all the world today lives on the edge of trying to please an angry god except for New Covenant Christians. Here, God, the book of Leviticus was revolutionary. God comes to them and says, let me tell you how much is enough so we can remove all the anxiety out of the relationship between us so you always know where you stand with me. This is revolutionary, guys. Nobody else knew where they stood with their gods. How much is enough? How much is enough? If you can see the blood, you know it's enough. So the blood must be put in a visible place. Those who have sinned must know your sin has been considered and it is forgiven. The only way your conscience can be at rest is if you know you are forgiven. Here's the sad truth, guys. There are people in the sound of my voice, those listening on live stream, not in this room probably, but some are sick, depressed, and oppressed because they are conscious of their sin rather than conscious of their forgiveness. They don't recognize that the blood has been placed before God and also placed before them so that they would know it is enough. So the moment you sin, unconsciously there's this thing that happens, somebody's got to pay. You know someone's got to pay the piper and this thing begins to churn. There's so many autoimmune diseases that are come, the root of it is guilt. Something's not right, you feel dirty, you feel you just, something's not going on right. You're, you know it's not enough. What's the problem? They don't see the blood on the horns of the altar. So they continue torturing themselves with guilt. When you fail to see that Jesus has already carried your punishment, here's what happened, is you begin to punish yourself internally with this self-hatred, and you begin to punish your family. You take it out with them, and you're cranky with them, and you're verbally abusing them, some people even physically abusing them, and the root is they can't stand who they are because they don't see that there's blood on the horns of the altar. Somebody's got to pay, and so they're making people pay. If you believe that you deserve to be punished and that you do not deserve success, you will unconsciously activate a self-sabotaging mechanism to punish yourself and cause yourself to fail. God, why am I not getting breakthrough? Why am I not? Because there's something on the inside you know somebody's got to pay and you don't have a revelation that somebody did pay. It affects your relationships. You don't feel like you're worthy to be loved because you feel guilty. You feel dirty. And so you're going to sabotage every relationship and uh, somehow push them away until they see you how you see you. 
Psychiatrists will tell you that a person with such behavior is driven by guilt and has a perpetual sense of wanting to punish themselves. The only thing that overcomes this is a revelation of the cross. Psychiatry, the psychiatrists, they can diagnose it, they just can't help you. You are the beloved of God, and Jesus has already been punished on your behalf fully. Stop condemning and punishing yourself because Jesus has already been condemned and punished on your behalf. The blood is on the horn of the altar. Once the blood is on the altar, are you ready for this? No guilt remains. You know what the final clause of the new covenant is? I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. It could also be translated, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds never again. Hold on. What, when, what happens when I sin? We'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. His blood does not just cover your sins temporarily. All of your sins, past, present, and future, have been removed permanently. How many times did he die? Once for all. Guys, sin does not change your relationship with God. Sin changes your relationship with the devil. I'm not sure you guys are getting this. Sin is not a problem between you and God anymore. It's still a bad idea. You can open up the door and give the devil a foothold, a stronghold. I've even seen some people give him a stranglehold. I just made that up. Why, after being in the Nazi concentration camp, that you're free, why would you ever want to go back to that? Sin just doesn't make any sense anymore. You are forever perfected every single day for the rest of your life. I've used this illustration before. I love it. Imagine you had a diamond the size of your fist. This thing was just absolutely beautiful. It had captivated you. But every time you took it out to play, imagine you're a little kid. Every time you took it out to play, the thing got dirty. But there was a waterfall by your house. And so you went and you uh, took it and held, that water, held the diamond under the waterfall until it got clean again. And you, came and you played with it and it got dirty and you got clean and you got dirty. And that's the old covenant. I'd go and I'd get clean from the sin offering, but then I'd go out and I'd get dirty again. And that's how most Christians are living their life. And they go out and they rededicate their lives to the Lord every time there's an altar call because they just don't feel like it's stuck because they know they're not perfect. And, right? But there's a new covenant. And suddenly this little child who has this diamond realizes there's this little cleft in the rock that sits right underneath the waterfall where the diamond fits in perfectly. And it sits under a continual waterfall and it's continually cleansed. That's your life if you're a believer and that's my life if I'm a, I am a believer. <laughs> As believers, this is my story, this is my song. You're literally living under a waterfall of forgiveness. The blood is on the horns of the altar. When you take communion, what are you doing? You're recognizing the blood is on the horns of the altar. It's enough. Jesus said, when you take communion, do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say, do this in remembrance of your sin. I close with this illustration. It's amazing. I read this this week. Let me see if I can... Do it justice. 
I'm going to use two pastors for this illustration. You just have to use your mind. We're going to use my wife, Mary Baker. And we're going to use Sean O'Rourke. Why? Because I always use those two. Okay, here we go. Let's say you borrowed $50,000 from Mary Baker, and you promised to pay her back in a month. But as time goes on, you're realizing, I can't pay this debt. So how are you going to be when you see Mary? You're going to be like, hey, what's going on? It's so awesome. What's... No, no, you're going to be like, hey, I'm, I'm so sorry. I just, you're going to... Your conscience is going to do something to you where you don't really want to hang around her. And when you see her come in the room, you're going to recognize, I owe a debt that I cannot pay, and your conscience is going to be triggered, and you're not going to want to be near her, even though she has nothing but love for you. I can testify to that. (laughs) Now imagine one day Sean hears about your debt to Mary. And Sean, in this illustration, is a billionaire. That's right, with a B. Someone lay hands on Sean's head, that there'd be a transference. (laughs) But because Sean is an international businessman of mystery and intrigue, he is about to fly to Paris. Why Paris? It just sounds awesome. I don't know. Paris. (laughs) And you're a friend of Sean's, and Sean finds out that you owe Mary $50,000. Of course, Sean is shocked by this. And so he goes to Mary, and he says, Mary, how much does this person owe you? And she says, $50,000. And Sean says, I'm going to write you a check for... $1 million. Mary says, no, that's too much. Sean says, I want this person to know at the core of their being that their debt has been fully satisfied. And that not only has it been satisfied, but it's been a blessing to you. So your debt is more than paid. Your debt was overpaid. Now, two things could happen as a result of this uh, scenario. Um, Let's imagine that Sean had to rush off to Paris and um, instead of telling you in person what had happened, he sends his assistant. And the assistant comes to you, and they kind of don't have the story straight, and they're like, um, I think that Sean paid off your debt, but I'm not really sure, so you might want to keep on making some payments just in case. What happened in this scenario? The messenger failed to convey the good news, and you're left with no assurance that your debt has really been paid and that you're free of it. This is precisely what's happening in the body of Christ. People are being told by preachers, um, it is finished, but you still got to pay the piper. You got to confess every single sin. If you you tell a lie and get hit by a car, you're going straight to hell. Guys, Guys, the only sin that is not forgiven in the entire new covenant is the sin of rejecting Jesus. That's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. You never accepted Jesus. It's the singular sin that the Holy Spirit has come to convict the earth. He says he's come to, con- um, he's, uh, c- to uh, convict the world of sin, and you find out in the next verse, it's the sin of unbelief. It's the root of everything. You didn't believe in Jesus. He's trying to convince you of your righteousness because the blood is on the horns of the altar. Let me ask you this. Once you finish repaying a bank loan that you took for purchasing your house, do you still have to send in monthly payments? No, you should stop sending your money to the bank because you're wasting your time. You're wasting your money. Okay? Let's look at another possible scenario. Let's say Sean could not get in touch because he's still going to Paris. So he tells a good friend of yours, go tell them the good news that the debt is paid. Your friend comes bursting in your door even though it's midnight. They're knocking at the door. They're jumping up and down, and they tell you this news. And that you're having a hard time even comprehending. What do you mean, a million dollars? Like... I only owe $50,000, like, I'm free of this thing? I don't have to do anything ever again? And you're, you guys are doing the happy dance. You guys are, yeah, you're locking arms, you're doing the hoedown. I don't even know what dances are. I mean, I don't even know what happens, but 
In my mind, that's what happens. 